Genesis chapter 25. That's where we're going to be starting today. Inconceivable. How many people thought of the Princess Bride? Okay. (laughs) So the Princess Bride, a movie in the late 80s, one of the great movies of our time. There was a character, Vazini, who kept saying, inconceivable, inconceivable. And Andre the Giant's character finally said, I do not think you know what that word means. He sounds a lot like Arnold Schwarzenegger, apparently. But inconceivable is a word that we, it means we don't understand. We cannot conceive of what this means. We just sung a song, Amazing Grace. That's another word that we attach to grace. In the title of my message, I have Astounding Grace. I really struggled with this. I almost used incomprehensible grace, but inconceivable. I, I think that my prayer is that at the end of this message, that we are just drawn to grace. For some, it's amazing. It's awe-inspiring. It will drive you to your knees. It will drive you to your feet in praise. It's incomprehensible. Sometimes it's comforting. It's um, astounding. It's inconceivable. I hope that our lack of understanding about grace will not be driven by my inability to speak, but our lack of understanding of grace is just, I can't comprehend it. It is bigger than me. God is so good. I hope that's where this goes with today's message. But let's look in Genesis chapter 25. Now, David already talked about the fact that as we look back in the messages that we've had in recent months, uh, since our church polity series, we've been looking at this character, this man in Genesis named Abraham. Abraham's life is coming to an end. We'll read today about his, uh, his burial. Now, the biggest theme, I believe, in the, in the past uh, weeks that we've had in Abraham is that God has developed Abraham's faith. We frequently hear of Abraham being a man of faith. We read of him in Hebrews in the great hall of faith, hall of fame of faith. But God grew him. God developed that faith. God gave him the faith um, that he might believe. The biggest hero in Genesis is not Abraham. It wasn't even Noah in the first part. The biggest hero in Genesis is God, the object of Abraham's faith. Now, as we look ahead, starting today, into the life of Isaac and Jacob, their lives are a little different. We saw ups and downs in Abraham's life. Um, We saw a pattern of growing faith. But what we have with Isaac and Jacob, with Isaac we have not that much described about him, and what is described is, is, is not so great. Some downs, not as admirable a character. But this should be encouragement for us. For those of us who are a bit too aware of our own shortcomings, uh, uh, for those of us who may be discouraged by how often we fail God, Isaac and Jacob should be a comfort to us. There's an author named Ian Duguid who has been very helpful to me in, um, in preparing this message and next week's message. And he says this awesome quote, God delights in writing straight with a crooked pencil. God delights in writing straight with a crooked pencil. And I think we have crooked pencils here in Genesis and maybe some crooked pencils here in this auditorium. So reading in Genesis chapter 25 and verse number 7. These are the days of the years of Abraham's life, 175 years. 
Abraham breathed his last and died in a good old age, an old man and full of years, and was gathered to his people. Isaac and Ishmael, his sons, buried him in the cave of Machpelah, in the field of Ephron, the son of Zohar, the Hittite, east of Mamre, the field that Abraham purchased from the Hittites. There Abraham was buried with Sarah, his wife. After the death of Abraham, God blessed Isaac, his son, and Isaac settled at Beir Laharoi. These are the generations of Ishmael, Abraham's son, whom Hagar, the Egyptian, Sarah's servant, bore to Abraham. These are the names of Ishmael, named in the order of their birth. Nebaioth, the firstborn of Ishmael, and Kedar, Adbiel, Mibsam, Mishma, Duma, Massah, Hadad, Tema, Jatur, Nafish, and Kedamah. These are the sons of Ishmael, and these are their names by their villages and by their encampments, twelve princes according to their tribes. These are the years of the life of Ishmael, 137 years. He breathed his last and died and was gathered to his people. They settled from Havilah to Shur, which is opposite Egypt, in the direction of Assyria. He settled over against all his kinsmen. Now we have the third section, starting in verse 19. These are the generations of Isaac, Abraham's son. Abraham fathered Isaac, and Isaac was 40 years old when he took Rebekah, the daughter of Bethuel, the Aramean of Padanaram, the sister of Laban, the Aramean, to be his wife. And Isaac prayed to the Lord for his wife because she was barren. And the Lord granted his prayer, and Rebekah, his wife, conceived. The children struggled within her, and she said, If it is thus, why is this happening to me? So she went to inquire of the Lord, and the Lord said to her, Two nations are in your womb, and two peoples from within you shall be divided. The one shall be stronger than the other. The older shall serve the younger. And when her days to give birth were completed, behold, there were twins in her womb. The first came out red, all his body like a hairy cloak, so they named him Esau. Afterward, his brother came out with his hand holding Esau's heel. So his name was called Jacob. Isaac was 60 years old when she bore them. When the boys grew up, Esau was a skillful hunter, a man of the field, while Jacob was a quiet man dwelling in tents. Isaac loved Esau because he ate of his game, but Rebekah loved Jacob. Once when Jacob was cooking stew, Esau came in from the field and he was exhausted. And Esau said to Jacob, Let me eat some of that red stew, for I am exhausted. Therefore, his name was called Edom. Jacob said, Sell me your birthright now. Esau said, I am about to die. Of what use is a birthright to me? Jacob said, Swear to me now. So he swore to him and sold his birthright to Jacob. Then Jacob gave Esau bread and lentil stew, and he ate and drank and rose and went his way. Thus Esau despised his birthright. Our Father, we pray that you would show us what you have for us in this text, in this story of ancient people. Help us to see your grace at work in these lives and also in our own. It's in your Son's name that we pray. Amen. So the structure of this message is we're going to start out looking at these contrasts in this chapter. I said it's a tale of two brothers in the title, I, I thought it would be too 
too difficult to say a tale of two pairs of two brothers. Uh, it's just we're first going to look at Isaac and Ishmael, and then we'll look at Esau and Jacob. But we have a comparison, first of all, Isaac and Ishmael. You can see in the text, and it's, it's really good to kind of see in the literary structure to help us understand. But you can see the 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 phrase in verse number um, verse number twelve, and then verse number nineteen. These are the generations of Ishmael, and then in verse nineteen, these are the generations of Isaac. They came together to bury their father, who had who had believed in God, who had had faith in God, had his faith grown in God, and it was credited to him for righteousness. They had buried him next to his uh, his wife Sarah. And then God takes a little moment, or Moses takes a moment, inspired by God, to, in these verses to list out the descendants of Ishmael. It's very interesting. Why would God take this time to list out these these twelve princes? Well, remember, Ishmael was born of Hagar, the Egyptian slave. And remember, she went out in the desert. She was going to, uh, she was running. She was going to die. Uh, uh, Ishmael was going to die, and God appeared unto her in the form of an angel and said. Back in chapter 17, he said, as for Ishmael, I have heard you. He's talking to Hagar. Behold, I will bless him. I will make him fruitful. I will make him a great nation. I will multiply him greatly. He shall father 12 princes. So this is God just showing his faithfulness, not only to Abraham, showing his faithfulness to a small part of the story, showing his faithfulness to Hagar and to her son. Ishmael, these names historically track into Arabian nations today. Twelve princes came from Ishmael, and they became a great nation, um, even though it's not mentioned in the rest of Scripture. We do see that Ishmael, at the end of that little uh, parenthetical passage between verses 12 and 18, that Ishmael settled against his kinsmen. That just means he he separated from them. He did not live with uh, his relatives that descended from Isaac. Um, Cousins didn't, didn't live together. They were separated and went their own way. Now, Isaac, who was younger than Ishmael, remember, his story begins here. He married Rebekah. We saw the story two weeks ago of how um, God brought Rebekah to Isaac um, and and the the marvelous demonstration of God's providence in that story. But the story begins with Rebekah's barrenness. And this is like, as Yogi Berra said, deja vu all over again. This is like Abraham and Sarah. Um, this is the promise of a nation, the covenant with Abraham that he would make him a great nation. But the promise of a nation hits up against the, the, the trial of barrenness and the doubt that can come into the minds of the parents. Abraham and, uh, and Isaac were very similar in this regard. The question that we have facing Isaac and his wife, Rebecca, can God fulfill the promise in his strength, or does he need a little bit of assistance? Can God fulfill the promise that he made, or does he need a little bit of assistance? Now, Abraham learned by facing this choice many times in his life. Abraham eventually believed God, and that faith was credited to him as righteousness. But one thought for us today, does this sound familiar? Do we trust God for our day-to-day trials, our day-to-day decisions? Many of us here, no doubt, trust him with our souls. We trust him for salvation. But we're not sure about whether we can trust him with our day-to-day decisions. We should be more like Isaac and Rebecca, as we'll see. How did they respond to, to Rebecca's inability to have children? 
They prayed. There's no Hagar story here. In fact, the, the verse where, um, verse 21, Isaac prayed to the Lord for his wife because she was barren and the Lord granted his prayer and Rebecca, his wife, conceived. It sounds very easy. It, it's like they prayed, nothing else happened, a baby came. But it actually wasn't that way. There were 20 years. You can see that Isaac's age is mentioned when he was 40 when he got married and then he was 60 when Isaac was, when uh, Jacob and Esau were born. I believe that the text is silent on what happened between the prayer and the birth because Isaac and, and Rebekah did not go try to figure out how to do it on their own. They prayed and they trusted God to provide a, ch- a child or two, that God would continue to fulfill the, the promise of his covenant. Satan provides shortcuts to us. The shortcut that uh, Abraham and his wife took, Abraham and Sarah took with Hagar and trying to work things out and maybe we can have a kid this way and this is how the nation will, this is how the promise will be fulfilled. That's a shortcut. That's not God's way. So we need to be reminded that God is sovereign. Even in trials, even in Rebecca's barrenness, God was sovereign. Although God did answer the prayer and gave them two sons, it didn't mean that he gave up his sovereignty. He was still sovereign after he answered the prayer as well. His timing is perfect. Now, as I said, the text makes it sound very easy, that they prayed and God immediately answered their prayer. But there's 20 years, 20 years of dealing with disappointment. There's 20 years, no doubt, of knowing that Ishmael, his half-brother, was having 12 princes, that their family was growing And that Isaac, who knew that he was the recipient of the covenant, that he was the recipient of the promise, did not have any children and was not, um, did not see where the nation was going to come from. Dealing with disappointment, again, is something that we can dwell on for a moment here in our own lives. What if God should see fit not to give us in this life what we earnestly seek from him? What if God sees fit not to give us certain things that we are earnestly seeking from him? Is he still good? Is there something in your life for which you are longing? A job? A better job? A marriage? Or a better marriage? A better life? Something that you want that is consuming you? And it is a good thing. It is not a sinful thing. God has not forgotten you. God did not forget Rebecca. God taught Abraham and Sarah through their waiting. God is teaching Isaac and Rebecca through their waiting. God is faithful and God is sovereign. You see, God has given us what we most need. God has given us a Savior. God has forgiven us of our sins and God has given us a way to be reconciled to Him. It is difficult to wait for good things. It is difficult to pray earnestly and yearn and and want to serve God with what he gives you. But let's not forget that the greatest gift, truly the greatest gift that dwarfs anything else we have in this life, has been given to us. It, In our most petty moments, in our sinful moments, when we long for things, it may be like a toddler at Christmas. Wouldn't it be odd if a toddler said, this is not the wrapping paper I wanted? The present is fine. I'm happy with the gift, Father. But the, the, the wrapping paper is the incorrect wrapping paper. I didn't want it in this way. 
Let us not forget. Let us be comforted by the great gift that God has given to us. In Romans 8, 38 and 39, we know these verses, what shall separate us from the love of God? And, and Paul goes through a list of things, and we'll look at that in a moment. But God promises to be with us always, in all circumstances. We heard this in the testimonies last week. One of the people giving their testimonies talked about how she was trying to figure out God, trying to figure out salvation before she was willing to surrender and and um, just believe in what God had done and that he would save her. She was trying to figure it out. This promise that God is going to be with us always, that God will provide us good things, maybe this is a promise that we just have to accept and live by faith in rather than by sight. Sometimes we just have to have faith that God will provide us good things because we don't understand why he is not giving us something that we are yearning for, that we are earnestly seeking from him. We may have to live by faith and not by sight. Shifting from Isaac and Ishmael, the first pair of brothers, we look at the next generation and we shift to Esau and Jacob. Now, long-suffering Rebecca, she is waiting, she is praying. Uh, she, she is now expecting twins. She's figured out, even though this is her first pregnancy, that there's a lot more going on inside than there should be. And there's twins. Um, there's turmoil within. I, I will be careful not to underestimate pregnancy, but I, I assume there is discomfort, but then there's like real discomfort with twins. And um, she is, she's, she makes a statement in the, in the New King James that said, if all is well, then why am I like this? If, if this is what you want, God, then why is this happening to me? If you want me to have children, thank you, but why is it so tough? So she went and asked of the Lord, what is going on? Which is the right thing to do? And a prophetic statement, or uh, in literary terms, an oracle was given to her. This, the statement in verses 23 and uh, verse 23, the Lord said to her, two nations are in your womb, two peoples from within you, and they're going to be divided. One's going to be stronger than the other. The older will serve the younger. Now, family conflict seems to be a theme throughout Genesis. The first family, one brother kills another. Um, the youngest brother is, uh, the, the line goes through him, through Seth rather than Cain. In Noah's family, we saw a great conflict. Uh, Abraham and Lot, uncle and nephew, had conflict. Isaac and Ishmael had conflict earlier, a few weeks ago. Jacob and Laban, we'll see in the coming chapters, Joseph and his brothers had conflict. There is family conflict as a theme throughout Genesis. And why do we see this discord? We'll, we'll begin to flesh this out today, and I think we'll see it in the coming weeks. But the ultimate reason for this family discord is election, God's election. Those whom God has not chosen, those whom are living out of step with God, are always at war or at odds with those whom God has chosen, even within the same household. We'll flesh that out more in the latter half of this message. But we see that God has chosen different people to serve his purposes. God's plan always remains secure, regardless of what man can do. But let's look at these two boys, Esau and Jacob. Um, we, we know 
the, the story, uh, no doubt we, we've heard this story taught many times, that they're very different. Esau came out hairy. Um, even in that time, just like in our society to an extent, being overly hairy can be a sign of uh, boorish uncouthness. I found that, that phrase in the commentary, and I liked it, of, of being somewhat... Um, well, Esau's nickname was Edom, which is red. And not to over-contextualize this passage, but it doesn't stretch far. He liked, he was red, red, hunting. Um, he probably liked to be out in the field, the original redneck. But he, he truly was different than Jacob. I won't comment on any, any people that come to mind when I think of Esau hunting a lot. But the, there, he had a different physical appearance than his brother, his twin brother. He had a different um, occupational difference, what he liked to do. He liked to hunt. He liked to be outside. Now, Jacob came out, and it's very interesting. When Jacob came out, he's holding on to his brother's heel. Now, um, I'm thankful that we don't get named. Our parents don't name us just based on our first impressions, whatever we're doing when we are born. In other words, it would be like, oh, Conehead baby. Let's name him Conehead. Or other things, but Jacob, they saw him grabbing, and um, you know they put a lot of emphasis on that first impression. You know, his name shall be whatever, and then therefore he's going to be this way. But they named him uh, Jacob, which means supplanter, or in our, you know, just in the vernacular, grabber. He was. It describes how he was born, but it also described how he lived his life, trying to grab things, trying to manipulate, and being very single-minded. Single-minded comes from this word when it describes Jacob in 20, uh, verse 27 as a quiet man. In other translations, it's a plain man. That, that Hebrew word describes a man that is single-minded. His desires and his thoughts are thoroughly integrated. He's very focused on a goal. Sometimes this can be a good thing, but in Jacob's case, he was a single-minded purpose of planning his schemes and accomplishing what he wanted to do. So he lived in the tents. He was a civilized nomadic shepherd. He knew how to kind of run the, the, the family business, so to speak. He knew how to be in the right place at the right time, controlling things, manipulating behind the scenes to accomplish his agenda. Now, also we want to contrast between these two boys, not only their physical appearance, not only their occupational difference, but they also were contrasted here in Scripture with how their parents loved them. I just want to spend a little bit of time on this. Isaac and Rebecca based their love for their sons. Noted here in Scripture, they based their love on what their sons could do for them. Isaac loved to eat elk, right? Isaac loved to eat wild game. And so he loved his son that could bring home the proverbial bacon or bring home meat and make bacon out of it. Probably not bacon, they're Jewish. But they were... That's an example of not thinking through an illustration. He loved his son that could bring him wild game. And Rebecca loved her son that was there in the tents with her. Now this, this, I don't think any parents start out saying, I'm going to love my children differently, but this is a, a good warning to us as parents not to be, show favoritism. I mean, this is, this is even wrong. We, we see how this inordinate love, this love that is misplaced, this love that was driven by what the children could do for the parents, how it led to tragedy for both parents. 
We're going to see in the coming weeks how Isaac was deceived at the end of his life and how Rebecca, who wanted, what did she love most about Jacob? That he was there with her. A little preview, Jacob ends up running for his life and being away from his mom for many years. Um, that which she wanted was driven from, from her. In retrospect, Isaac and Rebecca should have seen truth in what the oracle, in what that prophetic statement was. They should have prepared Esau and Jacob for the truth. They should have prepared Esau to, to serve his brother in some way. They, maybe they didn't understand what that fully was, but they knew that the promise was going to come with Jacob. They should have prepared Jacob to humbly get ready to be the godly ancestor of the Messiah. You know, this is just the second generation of the promise, but they, they had, they should have prepared him not to be proud, not to, not for this to be something that he grabbed, but that God ordained, that God had promised, God had prophesied that Jacob would, would be the child of promise. He should have been humbled. He should have been humbled because he was chosen. Not because of his greatness or because it was his place or his birthright, but Jacob should have been humbled just by the fact that God chose him. Now we also see in this passage, besides these contrasts, we also see this conflict in the transaction of the birthright. Let's go back to the narrative here in verse 29. You see this conflict. Both of them were doing what they did best. One was hunting, one was cooking in the tents. And Esau came in and he was consumed by his physical urges. He was consumed by short-sighted values. He, he exaggerated. Was he really, really going to die if he did not eat a bowl of stew? This was not a matter of life and death. And he made a hasty oath regarding that birthright. Now, what did it mean to have a birthright? In that culture, a birthright came to the oldest son, and it was a double portion of the inheritance. So if you had... Um, two children, two, two sons. The oldest one would get a double portion and the one-third would be left for the other child. If you had more sons, the, the oldest would get a double portion of the possessions. But more than that, the oldest son, the holder of the birthright, became the spiritual leader of the family, became the leader of the family business, so to speak. So there's wealth and power and name in getting the birthright. And Esau just like, you know, what good is a birthright to me if I don't have a bowl of stew right now? What was Jacob's motivation here? Now, we're not sure if Jacob knew exactly how God was going to make him the child of promise. But Jacob wanted that birthright. And so either he knew that God wanted him, that, that God had uh, chosen him to be the child of promise. Maybe his mom had told him. Or he didn't know and he was trying to steal something that wasn't rightfully his. Either way, it's very difficult to defend Jacob's motive. But if we consider Jacob may have been taking a, one of Satan's shortcuts, the promise was going to be given to him, was going to be, come through his family, his line. But Jacob said, I'm just going to help out God a little bit. I'm going to take the promise right now by stealing the birthright. He was unwilling to wait for God. He wanted to be clever to snatch it now in his time. So we see here, on the one hand, with Esau, a man who is driven by his appetites to exchange what is of eternal value for a brief moment's pleasure, a bowl of stew. But we also see a man on Jacob who did not want to wait for God. Before we get all indignant about Esau and how in the world could he give up something so important 
and so, if not eternal, at least of long-lasting value to him for a bowl of soup. Is there some cherished sin in our life? Is there some cherished pleasure, some appetite, a sin in your life that you are unwilling to part with for the sake of the kingdom? Is there something temporary that you know is not going to last that you are holding on to uh, more tightly than the things of God? Now, where does God's election play into all this? Who is God's choice? And why did he make that choice? Esau despised the birthright. The, the passage ends with like Esau, you have this picture of him coming in, eating, slurping it up, slamming the bowl down, walking back outside, like take the birthright, I don't care. Esau despised the birthright, but God had in his plan for Esau to give up that birthright, which Esau cared not about. In God's election, those who have been called, I'm sorry, those who have not been called in God's election do not lose something that they sought to have. Those who have not been called lose something that they don't value at all. See, God continues to choose and to call those who are His. But those who are passed over, they will never complain about God being unfair. Left to themselves, they have no desire to be chosen. For those who seek after God, that's a gift from God. What position are we in before we are saved? We are running from God. We are at enmity with God. Our sinfulness is an affront to Him. When we start turning and saying, there has to be something more. There's a reason that I'm I'm here on earth and it's more than just living for my own purposes. That's God beginning to work in our hearts to, to... to give us a heart of flesh to seek after Him. So be comforted. Those who seek after God, this is a sign that God has chosen you. Giving you the desire to desire Him is a gift from Him, from God Himself. But is this story fair, the story of Jacob and Esau? In every other family in that region, the birthright went to the oldest son. Why would God choose to be unfair in choosing which brother should be included in the promise of Abraham's covenant? And again, with the personal application, sometimes when we are unhappy about what's happening in our lives, don't we sometimes complain to God and complain in such a way that it seems like we believe God owes us more than he's giving us? Don't we have a right to to health, to have a good family? Declaration of Independence says uh, life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Don't we have a right to that? Let's turn to Romans chapter 9 and see what this biblical commentary, Romans chapter 9 is a commentary on the story of Esau and Jacob. Let's see what this says about what rights we have. Is the story of Esau and Jacob unfair? So Romans chapter 9. Romans chapter 9, we'll start in verse 1. But why wasn't Esau God's choice? Esau was his father's choice. Esau was the natural cultural choice. As we begin reading in Romans chapter 9, the Apostle Paul is speaking to the general problem of the unbelief of Israel. If the promise went to the descendants of Abraham and they didn't believe, does that mean that somehow the promise was broken because there are those in Israel, there are natural 
Jews that do not believe in God? How do, how do we reconcile that with God's um, all-powerful uh, nature, God's all-knowing nature? So he prefaces this chapter with the well-known passage that nothing shall separate us from the love of God. But then he needs to address how God has dealt with the Jewish people. So reading in, in, verse, in verse 1, and follow along closely, this is a, a really good explanation of God's sovereignty um, you know, in inspired words, but it, it can be dense, so I'll, I'll do my best to guide us through here. So Paul speaking, he says, I am speaking the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart, for I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen according to the flesh. They, like Paul, are Israelites, and to them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, and the promises. To them belong the patriarchs, and from their race, according to their flesh, is the Christ, who is God over all, blessed forever. Amen. So Paul is is, uh, reaffirming his love for his kinsmen, fellow Jews. Verse 6, but it is not as though the word of God has failed. For not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. And not all are children of Abraham because they are his offspring. But through Isaac shall your offspring be named. This means that it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise who are counted as offspring. For this is what the promise said. About this time next year, I will return and Sarah shall have a son. And not only so, but also when Rebecca had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, though they were not yet born and had done nothing, either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls, she, Rebecca, was told, the older will serve the younger. As it is written in Malachi, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. So what shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? By no means. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy. I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then it depends not on human will or exertion or effort on our part, but on God who has mercy. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose, I have raised you up that I might show my power in you and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. So then he has mercy on whomever he wills and he hardens whomever he wills. You will say to me then, why does he still find fault for who can resist his will? But who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Will what is molded say to its molder, Why have you made me like this? Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use? What if God, desiring to show his wrath and make known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy which he has prepared beforehand for glory, even us whom he has called, 
not from the Jews only, but also from the Gentiles. So this is dense. I recognize that introducing this passage may cause us to want to go home and read it more and study it more, and I hope that's the case. Um, In general, we would like to not confuse you when you come to church here and present a message that confuses you more, but this is a passage that deserves some attention. There's some really tough truth in here. So in verses 6 through 8, Paul is saying the promise of Abraham was not made just to mere physical Israel, those who descended from him, those who can trace their family tree back to Abraham, but the promise was made to those whom God has chosen both physical and spiritual, and including Gentiles. This would have been a problem statement for the Jews. You remember back in John chapter 8, the Jews told Jesus himself that they were basing their salvation on the fact that they were descended from Abraham. And, And Jesus says, you are not of your father Abraham, you're of your father the devil which is kind of strong, but you know, it's kind of telling them that it's not just because you happen to be born into that family that you are a, a recipient of the promise. So there's a threefold rebuttal argument that Paul is making here. First of all, Paul points out, it's not in this verse, but it's implied that God chose Abram not because of anything Abram did. We look back in Genesis and God chose Abram out of Ur, the Chaldees, And it doesn't say it's because Abram was a righteous man or a good man. He just chose Abram and and said, I want you to come out from your people and go to a land that I'm going to show you later. So the Jews might counter argue and say, well, we're not saying we're equal to Abraham. We're just saying we're descendants. Once God chose Abram, we get those promises, too, because we were born into this family. Okay then. But Abraham had many sons, right? Two in particular that we just talked about, Ishmael and Isaac. But Ishmael was the oldest, and not even Ishmael was the 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 child of promise. Isaac was chosen as the child of promise. Okay, so the Jews saying everyone who descended from Abraham is part of the promise. No, not even that first generation. It was only Isaac. All right, so the Jewish counter argument might be, well, Ishmael was a half breed. Remember, he you no, know, he's not. The, the son of Sarah. So we're talking about only those Jews who are pure blood descendants from Abraham. That's who God chose, and that's us, and that's how come we get to be saved. Paul points out that next generation after Isaac was Esau and Jacob. Both of them. He points out in the scripture, he says, one mom descended from one guy, Isaac, our forefather. You got two pure blood kids, and God chose Jacob. Culturally, God should have, you know, it, it would make sense for God to choose the older, but God chose one, and he even emphasizes the point of saying God chose them before they were born, before they had done anything wrong. He didn't choose the good one who was going to be compliant. He didn't choose the, the bad one. He, he chose them before they had done anything wrong. Um, he chose Jacob to fulfill his promise. That demonstrates to them, that should demonstrate to us, that our salvation is all of grace not all who are the children of Abram or Abraham are children of the promise God elects some and some he does not and he reminds us here in Romans 9 that even some of the original children the first generation children of the promise were elected I want to reemphasize in in verse 14 through 18 that Paul reminds us who God is Very powerful, very hard truth here. 
God told Moses, I will have mercy on whom I will show mercy. I will have compassion on those who I choose to have compassion for. And then he, he reminds us of Pharaoh. What a sobering statement. God tells Pharaoh, for this purpose I chose you. Now what happened to Pharaoh? He was destroyed. But God's telling Pharaoh, I chose you for this purpose, to demonstrate my power through you. You know what the hidden text is like to demonstrate that I can destroy you and that you're the most powerful ruler in this known world and you're destroyed. And by this, I will receive glory among all the nations of the world. God is choosing to to have compassion on those he will have compassion for. But he also chooses to harden those whom he will harden. This this is where it's going to take, I, I hope, study on our parts and prayer and more preaching as God reveals himself throughout the text. But this is a very natural question that they're asking, or Paul is kind of preemptively answering. If God will choose to harden those whom he will harden, if God will choose to show mercy, then how can I be held accountable for sin? How can I, how can I stand up to God's will? If he's going to, does, doesn't God make me sin? That's in verse 19. I'm glad they asked Paul because this is a very tough, tough question. Paul doesn't answer the question. He says, who are we to question that? Does the clay say to the potter, you know, I don't like the way you made me? Does the created being get to say to the creator that, uh, you know, why do you find fault with me? Paul is saying it's not our place to ask. The purpose that we see here in Romans is that God's purpose in this illustration of election is that he makes pots. That's the illustration of us. Some to demonstrate wrath and some to demonstrate uh, mercy. But all pots, all of us are created to demonstrate his glory. This is just the beginning of some of the stuff we talked about last week in the testimonies. It was heartwarming to see that people time after time talked about how God saved them not of anything they did, not because they deserved it, not because they were looking for him. God doesn't, we, we don't hear testimonies that talk about, I looked at all the religions of the world, and this religion makes the most sense. This religion has all the historical facts that back it up, that show Jesus was real, and so I'm choosing to be a Christian because I've proven everything else wrong. That testimony rings Hollow. It doesn't have repentance. It doesn't have faith. And that's why just figuring out Christ doesn't save people. You can have an intellectual knowledge of God and not be a believer and not rely solely on the work of Christ for salvation. But we see how God chose us. We see how God elected and how he does this for his own purpose to demonstrate his glory. But seeing this grace, how should we we react? How should we live knowing that God chose us not of anything we did for ourselves? Some quick applications. First of all, we should respond to the knowledge that God chose us through nothing we did of ourselves. We should respond with humility. We should eliminate boasting. Ephesians 2, 8, and 9, very familiar verses perhaps. Uh, for by grace are you saved through faith and not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, not of your works, lest any man should boast. 
So if you believe in God's sovereignty and salvation, or another word for that, the doctrines of grace, or another word for that, Calvinism, if you believe that God chose you and saved you, there is no room for boasting. That's, that's such a wrong re- reaction. Um, we are believers in Christ first. We are not Calvinists first. Um, I don't want to pick too much on Facebook because I'm, I'm on it too, but you know, when, when you have religious views, if you read people's writings and read what they believe, it, it's a little out of place to say, well, you know, I'm very proud of my doctrinal stand on this, this one issue and let that define me more than it is being a follower of Christ. So let's be careful. For those especially like me who have come to an understanding, a partial understanding of God's sovereignty and salvation later in my life, There's no room for pride. There's no room for me to make fun of those who don't believe as I do. There's no room for me to say, oh, if you were only as enlightened and as spiritual as I am, then you would be happy. There's no place for that. And there's even a verse that just says, no place for boasting. So our one reaction should be humility. Let me expand that a little bit. In other areas of spiritual understanding and growth, there's no place for boasting. There's no place for any spiritual knowledge that through the, by the grace of God we've been able to understand. There's no place for us to lord that over someone else in a group discussion. There's no place for us husbands. There's no place for us to look down on our wives because we've had maybe some more time to study and we've had more time to look at something. And then for us to be impatient, it took us two years to figure that out. And when she doesn't get it the first time we read it, we're going to be a little bit like, oh, come on, it's so obvious. No place for that. I'm not speaking personally. There's no place to scoff at another church who may not be where our church is. By the grace of God, we will not be at this place in a few years. Now, I don't mean this physical place. I mean the, the understanding we have of what God is doing in our body. It's okay to look back and say, I was blind. I did not understand that. But that should fill us with more humility. Like, how much more does God have to teach me? We will never arrive. We, older folks, you haven't arrived. I'm a middle-aged folk. I haven't arrived. And young folks, you really haven't arrived. Where God will keep on working in your life as long as you keep, let him. I think it is immaturity at any age to say, I figured out everything I'm going to believe, and I don't need to study anymore. I really, I just need to, you know, it's time for me to teach other people because I figured everything out. That is not humility, and that is not honoring to God. Second application, when we see God's grace in our life, not only should we be humble, but it should encourage love for God. 1 John 4.19, we love him because he first loved us. Don't just say that verse and, and kind of forget the meaning of that. Um, don't forget the origin of our salvation. Don't forget where that faith came from. It came from God. We ran from him. We fought him. We were enemies of him, and yet he pursued us. So our love for him should be even greater Understand when we understand and catch a glimpse in Scripture of a truth like election. And thirdly, we should evangelize. We should spread the gospel even more so, understanding that it's a work of God. It's a misnomer to say, well, 
If God chooses people, then we don't have to do anything. It's going to happen. 1 Corinthians one twenty one. The fact that God elects certain people to salvation does not exclude the means through which he chooses to bring them to faith. And 1 Corinthians one twenty one talks about through the foolishness of preaching, which I'm exemplifying today. Through the foolishness of preaching is how God is going to reach his chosen. So we evangelize all the more. And we evangelize with liberty and freedom, knowing we don't have to convince somebody or manipulate or scare them into coming down. You know, showing them movies about like burning stuff to get them saved. And say, do you want to choose God or do you want to choose burning fire? We don't do that because we can't save people. No, God, through the foolishness of preaching, through us, has honored, given us the honor of spreading the gospel. And through that is how he's going to bring his chosen unto himself. So we have a pair of brothers here, Esau and Jacob. One brother despised his spiritual birthright as something that was less valuable than a bowl of stew. The other brother schemed and plotted in order to acquire that birthright when he wanted to for his own selfish reasons. Now, which one should God save? God had to send a savior that was different than either brother. God had to send a savior who would consider his birthright his own birthright, that of being equal with God and receiving praise and heavenly acclamation for all time. One, God had to send a Savior who would consider that heavenly birthright as something to be set aside for the salvation of his chosen, not something that he would grasp greedily. God had to send one who would regard the birthright of his chosen people as something so precious that it could only be purchased through his own blood even though his chosen people had set it aside and despised their own birthright. Only God's sovereign, irresistible, incomprehensible, inconceivable grace could save us. I want to finish by reading Romans chapter 9, the last uh, verses 25 and 26. Um, it's not on screen, I believe, but verse 9, oh, there it is. 9, 25 and 26. Paul continues speaking to the Jews, as indeed he says in Hosea, those who are not my people, I will call my people. And her who was not beloved, I will call beloved. And in the very place where it was said to them, you are not my people, there they will be called the sons of the living God.